My name is David Frainer. I'm here with Henry Kassman for our conversation about storytelling, sort of a look behind the scenes, as it were, about the various aspects of the story that Henry shared with us tonight about uh, wilderness therapy. And I thought we might start there. <clears throat> what a story. You had us all just enraptured. Um, I think probably a lot of us don't, still don't know a whole lot about wilderness therapy. So I wondered if you might say a little bit more about that. I think my, my pe people might, like me, might confuse it with a ropes course, mm -hmm. which of course it's not, or outward bound, which it's also not. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, just could you share us just a little bit more informally about you know, your experience there? And um, <clears throat> in particular, I want you to tell us how you figured out bow drilling fire starting. <laughs> So ab absolutely, I think um, the biggest differentiation between um, like outward bound and wilderness therapy is the idea that wilderness therapy is more based around, um, I think the, I'm, I'm blanking on the word, but kind of suffering for a lack of a better word, um, deprivation, that's the word. Um, it's kind of, I've, <laughs> breaking it down afterwards within therapy, it's actually kind of building a traumatic event within your life. Um, so you know that you can overcome it, right? So um, the biggest way to describe it is it breaks you down and then builds you back up. Is it like boot camp? I've never been to boot camp. <laughs> but the, in some ways it is, though. In some ways it is, for sure, because um, people do, they build you up and you are broken down from the deprivation of like not having a warm enough sleeping bag or not having enough food. I mean, in the moment it sucks, but it builds you into a much stronger person. And, it, and near the end, it's kind of a... It's not like a last resort, but it's, it comes to a pretty, um, most people don't go there because like they were, it's a pretty serious situation in which you get in. That being said, um, they are, there are multiple programs across the country, um, primarily in Utah, North Carolina. Wow. Um, and I like to say North Carolina was harder because it rained a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> Is it fairly dry in Utah? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. So, so all kids with all different kinds of issues mm -hmm. show up in this same program. Yes. But it sounds like the program doesn't really differentiate between the various kinds of issues, like people who are depressed or, I don't know, suicidal or mm -hmm. uh, acting out in different ways. But they're all sort of drawn in or funneled into this same program that helps them so they come with different issues, is that right? Yeah, absolutely, and that really speaks, I think, to the humanity of the sufferer, right? Like, if you look at people past that illness, they still have that humanity within them, and so you can still work with their humanity and build them up as a human, regardless of their underlying illness, if that makes sense. Mm. Because, like, you, you definitely have that illness, but an issue within the mental health community I see is the idea that the illness is what defines your identity, and the whole idea of wilderness therapy is the illness is kind of on the back burner, and to them, you're just a human. So one of the things that you shared in your introduction is that you've developed a lot of interest in becoming a mental health advocate mm -hmm. as a function of that. Could you just talk a little bit more about that? And, and when you talk about being a mental health advocate, what exactly does that involve? Absolutely. So I actually have been doing some local talks. Um, I, I did Pecha Kucha. Um, night, and I did talk about males with eating disorders. Um, I try to avoid what I've been diagnosed with within my talk 
talks and advocacy work because <laughs> for a lack of a better word, it can be a contest of who's the sickest, who has the worst oh diagnosis. <laughs> so I try to stray away from that. And it's, it's laughable, right? Like it's, it's like, but it, it is the reality which we live in because people, again, it breaks down to the identity aspect. People find their identity within that illness. So of course people are going to be competitive if you think about it um, more. But regardless, um, the advocacy work I'd like to do is seeing humans in all aspects of their life. I think everybody in some ways struggles with mental health, maybe not mental illness, but the idea that we have this commonality as humans and we can touch that to find people with mental illness into recovery. I have to say, I'm just amazingly impressed by your worldliness and sophistication, if that's the word. Thank you. <clears throat> I had no such kind of level of awareness when I was your age. <laughs> I was trying to figure out about girls and college eventually, things like that. Um, so do you feel like you're different from your age mates in some ways as a result of your experience? Or do you find different ways of feeling more connected to uh, people in high school along with you? I mean, I... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's kind of like a balance, right? Like, there is some um, anger and frustration a little bit. Like, oh, why couldn't I have a teenage experience like everybody else? Like, why couldn't I have not been ill? Um, but when it boils down to, I feel like that's more just my ego talking um, in the regards of like, I attach that suffering to it. Um, and my experience, I like to use the word equity instead of equality, right? And I think this goes back to that because equity means to me the idea that some people need more and some people mean less. And just because somebody's experience was more intense or somebody's experience was less intense, their level of suffering is the same, I truly believe. Like, suffering isn't something that can be managed. Like, if you take an infant and, like, the infant stubs its toe, it's going to be just as intense as somebody who has broken their arm because the infant knows nothing else. So I think the idea of compassion really comes to mind. When I look at peers my age, I mean, yes, it's frustrating, like, with drama and that, but, like, it's, it's also refreshing that it doesn't need to be that heavy, it doesn't need to be like life or death, it doesn't need to be about illness. So I think to answer your question, it's a, it's a balance of both. You also mentioned um, in your introduction that you've developed an interest in becoming a Unitarian Universalist professional, which has some particular meaning for me since I'm a retired Unitarian Universalist minister myself. <clears throat> so, uh, and that came out of your experience or was alongside of your experience? Could you share a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, so I thought for a while I wanted to be a therapist, right? And I was like, well, that's really fitting. I've been in the system for a while and I, I get it. Um, but, you know, I, it just kind of hit too much, too close to home. And another thing about therapy, I mean, I partake in it and I think it's a very helpful and useful thing, but it's like medical, right? It's very um, clinical. It's not, it's uh. not as messy as it could be not to say that it's that's a bad thing but I see ministry as more of a removing from yourself from that clinical setting and not even dealing with ill people not to say everybody who goes to therapy is ill but a majority of people who do struggle with mental illness and just kind of seeing humanity and its messiness and embracing that and 
at the same time of that embrace, finding the compassion for other people and empathy and feeling that pain in which they feel and also having other people feel your pain. But not like in an emo way. <laughs> More like in a like, everybody struggles, right? And it's awesome when you have a community to struggle in. It's awesome to have a community in which to feel good in. It's an awesome to have a community in which to share experience in. And I see a minister as the way to facilitate that. I agree. <laughs> I also thinking that I think that an important part aspect of ministry, at least in the um, outward aspects of leading and conducting services, um, involves storytelling. Yes. Uh, in fact, I would tend to argue that the work of ministry or the work of the church is to uh, find a story that has both universal co components and is able to connect with individuals on, on their own Absolutely. level. Um, so are you interested in potentially becoming uh, a minister and having a church of your own? Or are you interested in more of a community? There's something called community-based ministry, at least in the Unitarian Universalist tradition, which is a little bit like what might be called a tent maker ministry in uh, congregational circles, meaning that you have an uh, <clears throat> quote, outside job, but you come at it with a particular Unitarian Universalist religious perspective, and that informs the nature of the work you do. So you might be a therapist of various kinds and a Unitarian Universalist minister at the same time. So that's a long way to ask my question. Uh, have you thought about the kinds of ministry you might want to do? Absolutely. I think a big one that calls to me is chaplaincy, um, because I think, uh, let me find the words. I think within a hospital setting, that's what a Unitarian Universalist chaplain would be in a hospital, um, just kind of tending to patients, um, helping, talking, and just kind of uh, not sharing suffering, but also just understanding and giving a hand. And I think that really appeals to me because I, like I touched upon in my story, the idea of listening is sometimes the best thing you can do, regardless of your capability to be a mental health professional like of course chaplaincy would have training but the idea that I could yeah, just a lot of training. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that I could go to a hospital and just listen and in that listening alleviate other people's suffering and at the same time find meaning in that seems amazing to me that I can just listen yeah <laughs> that's I'm gonna stop right there it's just an amazing idea that you can alleviate other people's suffering by actively listening and then find meaning in that. So it's kind of a win-win. <laughs> Henry, how do you know this? <laughs> how do you know this? It's unbelievable. It took me a long time and a bunch of therapy on my own to figure out what you figured out already <laughs> at, at the tender, this tender age. Um, really very, very uh, impressive. <clears throat> Well, I'll tell you, I don't have everything figured out. I just have like a... Oh, good. I have a very small niche when it comes to like life things. <laughs> and that's come from like pretty profound suffering, so... <laughs> I do want you to tell us about uh, your uh, experience with um, uh, bow Oh, yes, drilling. yes. So... Uh, oh, go what on. is it called exactly? Bow drilling. Bow drilling. And it's the thing where you... Yes. It is intense. It's a workout, first of all, because it's repetitive movement with your arm. And um, so we actually had to make the kit at the start um, completely by hand. We had a wood shaver, and that's the only thing we were allowed to have. 
And so we, and actually a saw, but we weren't allowed to take off live trees. So we, all the trees had to be dead. So we had to gather the wood and like find one that looked like a bow. Then we had to carve down a, um, we called it, I forget what it was. I, it's been a little while, but it's basically like, no, a spindle, right? All right, yeah. yeah. And then you have the board right. and then the top rock. And the top rock's the hardest to make because you actually have to have a rock. You have to take another rock and actually carve a hole into the rock. And that took about weeks of hours a day just carving a hole into this one rock as to put the spindle right here to place the spindle between the board. And then once you have your kit, which takes weeks of like making it, putting the hole in the rock, carving, um, you have to like practice, right? And it's a balancing act. It's, um, it's really hard because the spindle shoots out. It shoots anywhere that you don't want it to go. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you have to, and it probably took me about, I did it for five hours for probably three weeks. And then by the end of the three weeks, I could proficiently make a fire with it. Um, for anybody who knows about it, it's all about down pressure, which means you have to put as much as your weight down on it to create more friction. Um, but that's really all I can say about it. <laughs> and you became the best of your yes. cadre by the end of your stay there. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> well, uh, this brings us to the end of our conversation with Henry. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you so much. And it also brings us to the end of our True Tales live broadcast. Our thanks to our entire PPM TV crew. Good work. Thanks to each of our storytellers. What an amazing night, yes. And our thanks to you, our audience, live and broadcast and online. As I've said before, and I'll say it again, <clears throat> uh, storytelling helps to build community. It helps build connections with, be, among people. But it takes a village of listeners for that, those stories to come alive. And that's what you've been serving as tonight and each night that we have our storytelling program. Um, so join us next month when our theme is Out on a Limb. And a program note, as Amy has mentioned, uh, our April story will be May 1st. <laughs> so mark your calendar. Uh, and come on down at that point. Um, if you are thinking of telling a story, our workshops are generally the first Tuesday of each month, and it will be this coming April. May will be a little bit different. It's a wonderful way to workshop a story and uh, get it ready, as, as Henry knows. Um, so uh, you can find all the details on Facebook. My name is David Frainer. Thank you so much for being with us. Good night. <laughs>